I'm grateful for the effort that everyone is making to do that which is not easy to do. to work with the limitations. Which is the uh, essence of, uh, the true essence of religion. Religion means, the root of the word legere means to bind, religere means to bind back perhaps that which has been broken, but to bind yourself, take on a limitation of binding. Yoga, the word yoga to yoke, it's the same meaning of binding to a practice, to a posture, to an activity. The word temple had the same sense. Supposedly, in the old days, the template, the temple was a boundary. And then you consciously enter the sacred ground as a seeker, because there's questions, problems, uncertainties in the search when one enters the temple, the sanctuary, and then binds oneself, takes on a limitation. First, maybe one's excited, oh, I'm walking on the hallowed ground that the wise men and women over the centuries have trod on this same earth. Wow! Maybe we're excited. It's dawn. The light. Look at the light. Enlightenment. The light's growing. And we start to get hungry, start to itch, gets a bit hot in the midday, start waiting around for insights. Haven't we had enough? And we, but, but in staying with the template, within the template, within the religary, the binding, the yoga, there's a possibility of working with the limitation to then see the, the, the excitement come and go. It seems so much like me. It was me, yes, excited. I give my life and my future lives to the way, for the welfare of all beings. Then when we're really had enough, we don't care about anybody. We just get me out of here. And that seems like me too. Yet when there's a binding, a conscious, this is a conscious binding, conscious binding, staying where there's the possibility of seeing that which we thought was me, it shifts, it turns. Then we realize, oh, it's not me. So that's the paradox, isn't it? That you can work consciously with a binding and yet it can liberate us. Liberate us from wrong understandings. Because by staying steady enough, still enough, patient enough, then we we see, we can realize, have insight into the true changing nature, ephemeral nature. But it goes against the stream. It goes against our habitual tendencies. That's why it's doing what's not easy to do. It's easier just to follow habitual tendencies, open the fridge, close the fridge, turn on the television, change the channel. 
And now, my goodness, most, many people, Dad resisted cable for so long because he knew he was already wrapped up in like five, six channels so much. But then my brother insisted it would be for his good, so he he put it in, and, and now Dad has hundreds. He laughs about it, but we can then, don't like that, change the channel. That's not very interesting change the channel. Sometimes we don't even know it as we're just following the stream of habit. But in this kind of circumstance where we're binding ourselves consciously, voluntarily, I hope no one was forced here, drugged by the hair here. <laughs> you know. But... Um, you know, by staying with the limitation this so of silence, of sitting. It's actually the secret of the of the cross in Christianity. Consciously staying with and it feels like sometimes in the sitting we are being crucified. My God. Mind's screaming sometimes. But the opportunity to see that, get that into perspective sometimes when the screaming wells up and subsides, there's the possibility of that trans- mysterious transformation from crucifixion to resurrection, to discovering a, a new life. Yeah, there's the screaming mind, the hopeful mind, the discouraged mind, the loving everybody mind, the, my God, wipe them all out. <laughs> mind, we start to see that it's all stuff, opportunity to recognize a deeper part of ourself that sometimes we don't see when we're so habitually conditioned to follow the surface appearance of things. And then we get attached to the forms we're using. This form is best. Sit. You gotta sit. They're not sitting very much. They won't get very wise. Gotta do the sit. I gotta do the walk. I gotta chant this way or do that way. Then we're again missing the point. All of those are skillful means. They're helpful, but their point is to help us see ourselves, get things in perspective to liberate us. Liberate us from the wrong notions. But it's not easy going against the grain and, and having to listen and face things. And that's why I'm, I'm grateful that, because you guys doing it, guess what? It makes it, oh, I guess we better get up here. They're still here. I thought they'd have gone away by now. Still here. I think that's how Sangha works. I'm ready to give up. I see someone else there sitting, being with how it is. That encourages me to stay with the present moment so that then within awareness, revelation happens. In darkness, you can't, things aren't revealed. It could be anything in that room where you hear that sound. It could be, could be who knows what it could be. It could be bad people could be poisonous animals, could be, could be, who knows? It can create all kinds of things, and then we shine a torch in there. The revelation of what is, and you negotiate with what is when one illumines, sees clearly. So we've been hanging in there, first just connecting, establishing ourselves with presence, making a true connection, having moments of, ah, it's like this now. 
It's like this now, so we're finding our perch on something real, something actual. One step, that sensation, touching the earth, one breath, getting, getting composed. And perhaps some of us are beginning to feel a little bit the relief of that, the relief of not having to figure everything out. Being able to put that on hold for a while, I'll get back to you. Not sure. Good question, but I'm not sure for now. I'll be right back in time. And we leave it. Let it be. And, and, and notice the sensation of accepting the not sure. But noticing the sensation of sitting, standing, walking, feeling the relief of that. I wanted that to be the whole path. When I started meditation, that was such a relief because my early life was all about getting somewhere, about uh, accomplishing things. It wasn't bad. I worked hard. Grew up in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And um, what else to do but try to do as good as you could. So I was, uh, I know it's hard to believe looking at me, I was a champion wrestler. You should have seen me before. (laughs) I used to do 500 push-ups a day, climbing ropes, running, getting into shape. When I was eight, I saw the picture on the wall of a national champion wrestler. I thought, I want to do that. That's what I want to do. And so, because my sense of happiness was when you really win, then you'll be happy. And I did the same thing with academics, too. Just, you know, get the best on the exam. It's not bad things. But I was always working to the exam and this whole, my sense of being depended on so much on the grade, so much on the win. And there was, you know, there's virtue in that, but it was also going somewhere. I remember finally when I was, what was I, 17, when I got to the finals of this tournament up in Lehigh, Pennsylvania. We flew up to Lehigh, Pennsylvania for this national invitational tournament for the prep schools. I got to the finals and I um, uh, had a good match and I kind of won the match. And, uh, you know, and the referee held up my arm and um, the crowd was applauding, and that was, yes! <laughs> but how long does it stay up there? <laughs> if you have a mom like mine, she's got a picture. <laughs> and in the scrapbooks, you know, there it is, national champion. It's wonderful. It wasn't a bad thing. I'm telling you, wasn't long afterwards, minutes afterwards. I remember in the picture ceremony when they're taking pictures of the different champions, I'm scanning who's there, who's coming back next year, who do I have to defend my title against? I was already going into stress. I didn't know how to really appreciate And again, that the striving and working hard, these are not bad things. But, you know, I went to Princeton, and then I ended up going to Oxford on a Rhodes Scholarship. And by the time I was 24, I was still driving to get to success, real success. I was so tired. I felt 104. I felt so weary. 
And, you know, you, you know, only so long you can open the scrapbooks. And, you know, it's wonderful having loving moms. And, you know, it's incredible. And our trophies everywhere and, and loving moms and dads. And it's great. But, you know, okay, there it is there in the scrapbook. But then, you know, I was still stressed. And I still felt stupid. And I still felt I never could make it. And on then some level, you know, I'm a slow learner. Some level I was realizing, hey, maybe I'm looking in the wrong place. And when I was at Oxford, I started being drawn to sitting in churches. To be honest with you, I couldn't handle the sermons. Here I am giving one now. (laughs) I couldn't handle that. But the quiet places where I would listen, didn't have a teacher, but I would listen. And then something would happen. It was that turning of the attention back and listening. And I would start to hum. Not outwardly, but the, the, the energy would start to build up. I'd practice. And then sometimes, uh, you know, a, a light would appear. And I think, wow, that, that must be enlightenment coming. And the peacefulness just of being, steadying myself back here, giving myself to be here, was so delicious. Then I had the idea, well, if I get peaceful enough and that, if that light gets bright enough, I'll just blow the roof off this thing. And then everything will be okay. So I remember once I was uh, still, I didn't have a teacher at the time, but I was meditating and then I'd get quiet and then this inner light would come and I'd look at it and then get calm and then get all this energy and then be so excited. Once I was so excited when I was a student at Oxford after this good meditation that I raced upstairs to listen to the stereo on my friend's stereo and I opened it up quickly to get to my favorite music and ripped the top off his stereo. (laughs) And so my enlightenment very quickly disappeared. <laughs> so then I thought, okay, I need a teacher. Okay, so then I did a, a meditation course, and I learned, uh, I had a, the teacher that taught me about sweeping a bit, uh, sensations through the body, and I started getting calm. And again, I just wanted that calm, and I would feel good when I was calm, wanting that calm just to... Continue. And then uh, I did a few retreats like that, and then I would just, uh, as soon as the retreat was over, get depressed. Someone would look at me funny, I would think. Then I'd start thinking again. But fortunately, uh, I was in this category of uh, using meditation like a good lawyer. I would feel better, but I still didn't really have any, any wisdom in it. But I, I heard at this time, when I was a student at Oxford, I was 24, I heard about a forest master in Thailand, a great master named Ajahn Chah. And I heard he had a few Westerners with him. And uh, I, I realized I... All the awards, all that stuff, I realized I wasn't wise. I had all sorts of crazy emotions, and I wasn't wise. So I went off to Thailand. I got a leave of absence. I was writing a thesis. I was going to go back to medical school in America, be a doctor. But on this Rhodes Scholarship, I was just going to try to broaden my education. So I was writing a thesis on art, science, and mysticism in the works of Aldous Huxley. So it's like writing a, a thesis on the universe. Art, science, and mysticism. I want to figure it out. And so, but anyway, I knew I needed help, so I was going to go off to Thailand. And look, if I got peaceful with, uh, you know, I had done... You know, we're only on day four here, but I had done a whole 10-day retreat and a half. And, and if I got, okay, it was a hell for the first few days, but if I got peaceful 
got some peace there. And if I got peace in a 10-day period, three 10-day periods in a month, 12 months in a year, I can do it in a year, but look, let's be humble. Let's give ourselves two years. <laughs> and you'll just blow it, blow the roof off, this enlightenment. Then I'll go back and live happily ever after. So that's what I was going to plan to do. So I got a leave of absence for my thesis, and I went off to Thailand and uh, to meet the great master. And... Um, I didn't know actually what would happen, but I, I sort of was hoping that he would speed things up a little bit, and maybe tap me on the head or something like that, so that that light could just uh, blow it out. And I was, uh, though I'm a slow learner, I work hard, very hard worker. And uh, I noticed that with the meditation that I knew how to do to calm down, that I could not only sweep my attention through the body, but I could sweep down both sides of the body simultaneously. <laughs> So, I felt pretty good at it, and I was hoping he would recognize my skill. I mean, I know it's wishing for too much, but it'd be nice if he said, uh, I've been waiting for you. (laughs) I mean, why not? I felt I had a lot of potential. <laughs> so anyway, I finally get arrive in Bangkok, end up, end up getting on a nine-hour train ride north. This, this uh, guy had was uh, taking me to meet Ajahn Chah. And the guy who, why I was so impressed by wanting to meet this person is the guy that had told me about Ajahn Chah was a very, another American who was very confident and uh, had no doubt. He lived in Thailand for many years, was an explorer, had walked across the Arctic, had dined with the king and queen. He was a psychiatrist. He, he knew stuff. He was good. And then uh, one of his hobbies was investigating meditation monasteries around Thailand and doing personality tests on the monks and seeing how med- <laughs> meditation changed you and all that was interesting. But then when he said, there's one special place, and when this strong, confident, fearless guy, the guy was fearless, he said, and there's one special monk. And when his voice got quiet, and we said, his name is Ajahn Chah, and he's enlightened, the sound of reverence, I hadn't heard that sound before. This beautiful sound touched me. This person became soft, and as he was remembering Ajahn Chah, I felt that respect, I felt that love. And like in those old movies when, when, when some guy, old uh, oriental movies where some guy with no shirt hits a big gong. <laughs> Have you seen the ancient movies of the Orient or something like that? It was like this wong went off in my whole life, that, that beautiful reverence. And I just thought, I got to go. I got to meet, meet this person. So I flew off to Thailand and met the person, and they took me up on the train to the northeast and introduced me to, to Ajahn Chah. And um, my first reality check was when, when I went into the monastery, these shaven-headed monks were walking out on alms round out of the forest into the local villages and, and, you know, someone with a shaved head, at that time it was like a bunch of skulls walking out of the... It was a bit scary. It was a little too real for me. You know, I was into this kind of enlightenment, flashing lights thing. Okay. 
But we, 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 we were led into the monastery and uh, all the monks lived in little huts on stilts because the insects would, uh, would cover everything. But the, the stilts were either surrounded by oily rags to keep the insects from climbing up and eating the huts, the termites, or, or they had little moats around them, little uh, water things. And anyway, in the space below the hut, uh, Ajahn Chah, a real simple hut, had a little wicker chair and he would receive guests. So uh, he had some guests there and we, we, we went up. He was sitting in the wicker chair and we bowed. I watched him bow and I kind of, I just thought I'd do the same thing. Didn't quite know what I was doing, but I was honoring the teacher. I was introduced. He looked at me and said, uh, why have you come? So, again, I was hoping he would see my potential. <laughs> but I was a bit set on my back foot there with why did I come. I couldn't really say, so you can tap me on the head and finish it. Uh, I mumbled something about enlightenment, balance, and blah, 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 blah. But then you know how when you're talking sometimes you're kind of running out of steam. You kind of peter out a little bit. And um, so then he said, well, do you know how to meditate? Well, I was on firmer ground there because I'd done a 10-day retreat and a half. And, and so, and you know, I could sweep both sides of the body. So I'm talking about my meditation. More confident now. And because I did feel better on meditation. You know, when I would get calm, I would feel better. I knew that was the track. And as I'm talking about my meditation, and I don't think I'd really properly finished, when he gets off his wicker chair on the floor like a dog and starts sniffing around everywhere, (laughs) sniffing here, sniffing there, and then saying a few things, and everybody's laughing. And then sniffing, sniffing, laughing, laughing, saying stuff. And I'm waiting for a translation. (laughs) But with my um, formidable Piscean intuition, I could tell he wasn't impressed (laughs) with my meditation. And finally, I don't know if I whispered to Doug, I think I said, uh, it's Dr. Burns who took me. I said, Doug, what? what what's he saying? And, fi- and finally, Ajahn Chaka sits down with this big smile, loving smile, sits down, smiles at me. And uh, Doug says something like, well, he says, you don't need to sniff around looking at everything. He said... He said, uh, why don't you be with your breathing? And he points to his nose. And he said, if you understand one thing well, you understand everything. If you understand one thing well, you understand everything. Now the calming, there was nothing wrong with the calming that I was doing. But but I didn't have wisdom in my practice. It was calming and this kind of wrong view of just hoping the calming enough would just just blow it all out. I was still just holding. wasn't investigating to really understand. And over the years, I've really, really appreciated the the simplicity of that uh, teaching and how we've been establishing ourselves, yes. But now as we're shifting the focus a little bit, using some of that capacity to be present, using it, But then looking at the nature of things, 
starting to notice what uh, diverts us, what keeps us from being present. And starting to notice the, the characteristics. Uh, <coughs> calm and insight are not far apart, as Tanisha said, it's like a candle in the flame, they're inseparable. Or the Buddha said they're like two oxen pulling the plow, they work in tandem. When we're a little bit steady, then we can look in and see the nature of things. What does the nature, what does the breath tell us? How do we understand the breathing? It comes and goes. It swells and subsides. First we just learn how to be present, be present, be present, steady. Then, then we can notice the nature, the characteristic of existence, of what is. First with something really simple. The breath arises and ceases. The work of vipassana, the work of looking into, is to see the nature of all that we just take to be me. We take our body to be me. We take our possessions to be me. We take our feelings, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant, to be me. Our perceptions, our thoughts, our moods, we take them to be me. Being a champion to be me. Then it keeps dissolving. When we don't really understand the nature of conditions, we keep looking for stability in this world of form and feeling and thought, we look for stability and we, we never find it. It keeps eluding us. That's why it's called sangsara. The great liberator, when we, when we start with whatever composure we have to begin to look into the nature of conditions, the Buddha taught the first characteristic that is very profound is the characteristic of anicca. Nicca means permanent. Anicca is not permanent. And in a way, that's so obvious. And we can skip over it so easily. I mean, if I gave a multiple choice question, handed it out. Is today the 22nd of February, 2012, permanent or impermanent? Impermanent. Is, uh, you know, the kind of um, feeling restless, permanent or impermanent, impermanent. Kamani is, uh, is your new car permanent or impermanent, impermanent. Is your bank account permanent or impermanent? (laughs) Grudgingly, why impermanent? (laughs) But we would all pass it. It would all, but, but, but the profound, the, the Buddha taught that when we really, not just theoretically, when we really are in contact, like right now, you know, Kitty Sorrows, it's Wednesday, I think, Wednesday night Dharma talk. We're in contact with it. We notice that it's actually full of holes. It's there. It dissolves. All these words keeps being there and dissolving. There and dissolving. Yet we can be so fooled by the label on things. Oh, he's giving a good talk, or you know, I don't think he's really got rolling yet. <laughs> I'm not sure he will get rolling. I don't know how much time we got <laughs> waiting for him to get rolling. <laughs> but we can have our labels that we don't really come into contact, but when we really notice the so-called talk, it's there and it's gone. We notice the, 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 the breath, one in-breath. It's there and it shifts and gone. Out-breath, there and it's gone. The sounds, the day that was light, now dusk, and the moods, these moods, how many 
in this limitation, in this temple, compelling moods we had. The doubts of, oh, I don't know, it's just, it's just too difficult. I just don't know what to do. And I don't think they know what I should do either. You know, it's just so... But to, to begin to really meet that, just that lesson that we saw from the breath, it comes and goes. To be able to see the same thing in, in, a, in a mood, in a doubt. Can we know oh, that's the doubt? Hear it well up and subside. Well up and subside. This characteristic of impermanence, the Buddha taught that all the most profound insights come from that. Emptiness, not self. When's Kitty Star going to get to emptiness? You know, he's dealing with this kind of stuff. You know, come on. Jack it up for the, you know, the deep stuff. (laughs) Emptiness, not self. Guess where that comes from? Otherwise, it's just some sort of theoretical thing. When we really see the impermanent nature of every sound, every thought, doing well, I'm doing terrible, I'm getting there, I'm not. The cascade of change right now of the heart beating, the sensations of our clothes touching the skin, sounds of the talk. When we really start to make contact with this simple but profound truth, then dukkha becomes obvious. Dukkha means not satisfactory. It's sometimes translated as suffering, but it means not reliable, not certain. If everything's changing and shifting and dissolving, why is it that we look to conditions to find stability and happiness? One of Ajahn Chah's favorite expressions that he said again and again, he said, if you look for certainty in that which is actually uncertain, you're bound to suffer. It's the nature of light to be uncertain. It shifts and changes. Nature of sound to be uncertain. It's there and it's gone. It's there and it's gone. It's the nature of our feelings, liking and neutral and disliking and things being easy and things being difficult. It's the nature of feeling calm, having some calm meditations. When I was grasping at the calm, wanting it just to stay there. The image that always comes to mind is when I grew up on Lake Chickamauga on a a quiet summer evening. Sometimes the lake is like glass. You can whisper on one side and you feel like it can be heard. Just so calm. I love that. But in the summertime, Lake Chickamauga, guess what? There's other people that want to enjoy the comp. (laughs) Motorboats coming and this and that. Tranquility is like that. It's there, but then it it gets disturbed. I declared war on ticking clocks for years (laughs) because I was a slow learner. It was disturbing my meditation not realizing that certain levels of, of, of you know, calm, it's good, it's skillful to be able to refresh ourselves, but to realize those states are impermanent. If you understand one thing, you'll understand everything. The breath arises and ceases. So do moods. So do success and failure. Praise and blame.
So as we begin to enjoy whatever steadiness we have, but then start to shift, shift our gaze just a little bit and start to notice change. Notice everything changing. Then begin to notice dukkha, that whatever we're turning to is by nature unreliable. And yet, yet we turn to a good mood. It's so tempting when we feel good, turn to a good mood. And when we, that's me, that's mine, this is myself. That's what is called birth. We lean on it. We lean on the good mood. Or I used to lean on that tranquil feeling. Then when it shifts, when the clock's too loud, and, and then we, we lose our balance, that's called death. And then we seek another pleasing, certain abiding. Then when it shifts, we lose our balance. That's why it's called samsara. It's endless because if we don't realize, we're looking for certainty where you can't find it. So then we lean on success. And it's not that success is is bad. It's great when there's a success. But like the in-breath, it turns to the out-breath. Even the Buddha, the great saints, the Christ, uh, the avatars all had success and failure. People tried to kill the Buddha. Sometimes people didn't listen to him at all. They just would squabble about different things and he would just have to go off and go on retreat. Once his disciples were so annoying, he just let an elephant be his attendant. (laughs) Elephant used to bring him I don't know, coconuts or something. <laughs> but when we, when we don't recognize that, we're looking for certainty in the wrong place. So as we meditate, we're don't have to sniff around too far. We can stay with the body, stay with the breathing, and then begin to notice Change. Change. And can we be peaceful with change? Ironically, the more one surrenders to, honors the ever-changing nature of form and feeling, thought and perception, the more one honors that, the more one recognizes, mysteriously finds oneself standing, abiding in the changeless. On the night of the Buddha's awakening, he realized that all suffering came from this making assumptions about owning this phenomenon of form and feeling and perception and moods. By owning it, grasping it, the nature taking birth in that would create birth and death and stress and suffering. And when he saw all that, then he let go. In realizing what arises ceases, then our lust, our greed, our, our, we're asking from life what it can't give us. It's like squeezing it. It's, 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 it's tragic in a way. We can, what we love, sometimes we squeeze it too, too hard and then we choke what we cherish. As Blake said, he who binds to himself a joy does the winged life destroy, but he who kisses the joy as it flies lives in eternity sunrise. Holding lightly, holding and letting go, and letting things come and go, conditions are as they are. Then one starts to notice the underlying suchness that we've missed, that original brightness. 
that measureless stillness that we'd overlooked when we were so busy being hypnotized, mesmerized by the forms, by owning, becoming our moods, our thoughts, our feelings. It's not that we have to reject them now. That's an extreme too. But to get to know them, know this changing, unreliable, selfless nature, Does that mean selfless nature? It's there, it seems like me. Yes, you could say it's me, but then if we stay and notice the the doubt shifts, then it's it's me, but it's, it's not me. It's empty. It's there and it's gone. We can call it me if we want, but... Ajahn Chah said, the most important book we can read is the book of the heart. One of the great obstacles for Westerners, many of the ones who came to him, is we have all this knowledge about spirituality and enlightenment and wanting to get somewhere. And certainly one can learn from reading, but if it just stays theoretical... That's what he was encouraging me when I was trying to solve the universe first, intellectually. Get to know one thing well. Read the book of the heart. and The book of the heart has the body in it. Can I read in-breath, out-breath? It's there and it's gone. It arises and it ceases. Can I read? Can I really know doubt? When we don't know that move, or as Tanisha was mentioning last night, we're in search of an answer. We think an answer is going to solve our problem. Just come up with some answer. It's like me implying that thinking my hand would be held up there forever and I'd be a victor. It's like thinking some answer is going to solve everything. I've got the answer, but it dissolves. No, I really, I really got the answer, and then it dissolves. When we read the book of the heart and listen that every thought, like the breath, arises and ceases. Rises and ceases. And even though we might not have an answer, we're abiding in knowing. We know you. We know the nature of that mood. It's impermanent. It's not satisfying. It, its nature is to wobble. That's what it's supposed to do. It's not who we really are. So we honor it. We listen. We read it. We touch it gently and we let it go. In letting go, we then can rest again in our balance, in the ground, our home territory, at home. The conditions come and go, but they keep dissolving into the unconditioned into that which never dies, that which is, which we've overlooked. So Ajahn Chah would say, if we let go a little, we have a little peace. And if we let go a lot, we have a lot of peace. And if we let let go completely, we have complete peace. So in practicing these next few days, continue being simple, Honoring the forms, not being afraid of them, but giving ourselves permission also to hear things arise and cease. We're going to make friends with dying. We're going to bear the dying of a sound. 
the dying of a thought, the dying of a breath, allow as we let go of the out-breath, bow into, okay, so the breath's here and it's gone. We allow that. We'll find ourselves then landing and resting in the ground, the restful place of our own being, of our own awareness. Whatever we call it, it's just another impermanent thought that we can listen to and allow it to come and go, to let go. Ultimately, it's a practice of giving back to Mother Nature what never belonged to us. As we said on the opening night, the root cause of endless birth and death is this imagining that we own things, that this is mine, my mood, my life, my possession. Yes, we can cherish and look after things as much as we can. But when we get close and see how bubbly, ephemeral, ever-changing it is, this imagining that we really own things is just a recipe for stress. So we're going to be practicing giving back, relinquishing, being patient, kind with, and reading, allowing ourselves to read the fears. Well, what, what, if, if I let go, who will I be then? Who, 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 who will I be? And we practice knowing you, listening to that voice kindly of what if, what if it arises and cease? What if, what if it'll arise and cease? The first disciple of the Buddha who was awakened after the Buddha's first sermon, that was his insight. Whatever arises, ceases. That's what Ajahn Chah was pointing to when he pointed me back to my nose, the last place I wanted to look, frankly. When I was growing up, this was a real tender spot. Everybody making fun of my nose. English teacher used to say, Son, your nose is like the keel of a ship. <laughs> Thanks for that. <laughs> but to, to be encouraged with a big smile of Ajahn Chah, to go to just how things are and see everything coming and going, opinions about whether we like ourselves or don't like ourselves, whether it's good or bad, the in and the out, the letting things come, the letting things go. Practicing that and allowing ourselves to land and rest in a place of uh, peace. The finishing this. Uh, this evening with the words of the Buddha, encouraging us not to be afraid to let go, not to be afraid of of acknowledging the ephemeral nature, encouraging us that there is a place of peace and it's not somewhere else. It's right here at the core of our being. This is a passage Tanisra and I really love returning to where the Buddha is talking to a young student named uh, Kappa. Next was the Brahmin student Kappa and he said to the Buddha, Sir, there are people stuck midstream in the terror and the fear of the rush of the river of becoming. Death and decay overwhelm them. For their sake, sir, tell me, where to find an island? Tell me, where is their solid ground beyond the reach of all this pain? Kappa said the master, for the sake of those people stuck in the middle of the river of becoming, Overwhelmed by death and decay, I will tell you where 
to find solid ground. There is an island, an island which you cannot go beyond. It is a place of no thingness, a place of non-possession, a place of non-attachment, of letting go. It is the total end of death and decay. And this is why I call it Nibbana. There are people who in mindfulness have realized this and are completely at peace here and now. They do not become slaves working for Mara, for death. They cannot fall into his power. So take heart. Let's hang in there with this process and let the simplicity of a breath as it arises and ceases take us home. goodness of our work be a blessing for all beings. We don't even need to try to hold on to this goodness. We can also let that go and just shine like the sun because our nature is luminous. What obstructs its light is when we mistakenly think we have to keep it, grab it, hold it the more we relax and let things come and go as they do naturally, the more our radiance will illumine the whole universe.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.